Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Please welcome Carolina and Antonia. Damn. Hey. Hey, girl. Hey. So it's an honor and a pleasure to celebrate Carolina's The Invaders. And we were talking earlier about how our books... I'm going to stand first and then I'm going to sit later. Maybe I'll stand later. Yeah, stand later. (laughs) Our books orbit each other in so many ways. And um, that's why we wanted to do this conversation, because our books are kind of friends and they they sort of have... They orbit each other. And so we're going to be talking about desirability and acting out and... Terminal loneliness. So Fun stuff thanks like for that. coming on a Sunday. <laughs> so thanks for giving us a chunk of your bizarre Sunday to share with us. So I guess I'm going to read. I'm going to read for a couple of pages uh, my book, Spent, which is amazing. It's a memoir. You should. Get, everyone should get my book and her book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but mostly her book. This is how this is going to go today. So this is, um, you think you're reading a book about a sex worker who is um, turning a trick in a hotel room, but you're really reading a book about a girl who goes to see her mother die. So I'm just going to jump in and just read a couple pages. And I'm reading kind of a sex scene because we're going to talk about uh, lack later. As a sex worker, I'd met hundreds of women over the years. And although I don't remember their names, I remember certain songs they always dance to and the smell of cheap peach lotion on their skin. I remember drops of sweat on their spine as they stepped off stage and the way they hastily tied the bow on a pink lacy bra they had worn to death. I remember the way their ribcage moved as they gyrated on laps, a mole on her chin, freckles on her thighs. At that party, I remember Kara's vacant blue eyes and her soft voice answering, yeah to any question I asked. I didn't know if she was a sex worker back then, but her roommate was. Kara smoked nervously and had a chip on her right tooth, but grinned wide anyway. So when I met her at her loft downtown, she chain-smoked while I stared at the chip on her right tooth and wondered why she wanted to help me. Her proud smile reminded me of my mom. I talked about my money worries. I can help you, she said. She suggested we put up an ad on an escort site for massage. I'm no massage therapist, I said. She promised to show me the happy ending ropes. I figured no matter how much porn guys consumed, touch was something computer screens hadn't yet replaced. So we took cheesy pictures on her phone and uploaded them onto the site. She texted her regular client, Dennis, and set up a meeting. He was the first in a long line of clients in my hand job life with Kara. Our shoulders touched in elevators after she chucked her cigarette into the grass. I smelled smoke on her fingers and chewed my gum in tense moments while we walked through empty lobbies and hallways, looking at numbers, counting in whispers. My own body went through the motions of sex work while my mom's body shriveled from bile duct cancer. In those feeding tube days, I dreamt of mom's voice on the answering machine saying, Would you just look at this spaghetti squash? Big as pumpkins and so early. She spoke until my answering machine cut her off, and I jerked awake. 
In the beige penthouse suite, I got undressed except for my shoes, bra, and fishnets. Kara liked to be naked. Dennis wrapped his long, scaly arms around us. Such sweet energy, he said. Grizzly black hair covered his chest and sprouted from his ears. We walked over to the California King, where he lay on his back, a beached whale in soft sand with his belly up. The white sheets were expensive. Are you married? Kara asked. She had her methods with married men. She wanted to teach them to bring their wives to a massive orgasm. It was the stuff she learned in a sex cult in Northern California. She crammed a rose quartz crystal into his left palm. She passed away two years ago, he said. He didn't look sad. He closed his eyes, and the soft pillow caved with weight memory foam. You're so amazing, he said. His voice reminded me of soft crying. I wondered if he missed his wife. I felt sorry for him and had an impulse to kiss his neck, scales or no scales. I told you. (laughs) The book is amazing. So my uh, novel, The Invaders, has a lack of sex. Um... And I'm, there's the narrator, Cheryl, she's one of the narrators, and her stepson, Teddy, is another narrator. And um, I'm going to read from both tonight. So first you'll hear from Cheryl. She's an aging trophy wife in Connecticut, and her son is a pill addict, but they're both suffering from terminal loneliness. So here we go. Her husband's name is Jeffrey. When I woke up in the middle of the night, I noticed that Jeffrey was not next to me. His side of the bed was clean and made. As I snuck down the stairs, I could see him asleep on the sofa, a pillow crammed under his head. I got the familiar feeling in the pit of my stomach of having done something wrong. I had put on a lace nightgown last night just in case, but it hadn't mattered. Jeffrey hadn't seen me. I could walk around like a nudist, and it wouldn't even register with him. Now, when I returned home from my morning walk, the sofa was empty and I folded the blanket that he had tossed aside. There was no point in being melodramatic. The club phone directory lay open on the counter. I stood above it and ran my fingers along the numbers. I flipped the pages, closed my eyes, and pointed. I didn't recognize the name and I dialed star 67 to block my number. Then I took extra care dialing, listening to the beep with each numeral. I listened to the phone ring, and when a man picked up, I said a breathy hello, waited for a return of the favor, and got nothing. He hung up. That was the problem. Often, I was mistaken for a telemarketer or someone begging to change political parties. I wasn't. I just wanted to get us off. I tried to phone my mother. It rang and rang with no answer, not even a voicemail or a machine picking up. I considered driving over to see her, just to see if she was okay. I decided I would do it after another walk. I needed to clear my head and think of how I would approach her. I knew she wouldn't be happy to see me. The last time I had seen her, I told her I was ashamed of her. I used to watch my mother float around the house at night in her lace see-through nightgown, unashamed as we watched her. She was the most beautiful woman in the world to us. She wanted, we wanted to be womanly like she was. I wanted to be looked at and desired, and I was gangly and young, and it seemed to me an impossibility. I'd have to wait years to fill out. She was always pacing back and forth, waiting for our father, but she looked so gentle, floating back and forth, her nightgown billowing behind her with each step. 
Her heels would tap against the wood floor and hypnotize us with the sound. When she wasn't home, we'd take her heels out of the closet and try to mimic that sound as we paced and puffed on invisible cigarettes, looking out the window for our father, trying to capture that same exasperation. When our father stopped coming home, she took to waiting for other people's fathers. But we didn't wait with her then. There were times when the men around would bring us food and we'd be fed for a while. But sometimes she would be gone for days and we'd have to search the house for spare change or for some of the rolled up money we saw them give her when they thought we weren't watching. We'd take it knowing she would always get more, then run up to the store and stock up on TV dinners, breakfast setups with smiling parents on the packages, frozen treats we wouldn't save for dessert. When she was home, she'd prepare a feast of whatever she had. She made it feel elaborate and special. Once she had come home with watermelon, exclaiming it was too hot to eat anything else. She cupped a melon baller and dipped it in and out of the flesh of the watermelon, making a hillside of sticky red balls on a plate. She cut out stars to, top, to put on top of the overflowing plate. She said we could eat it all. It would fill us up. Then she gave each of us a cube with a dusting of salt and to- told us to pretend it was the main course. The rest could be dessert. Juice flowing down our chins, we ate until our stomachs rumbled, sick from the sweetness. She said some people never got to taste watermelon even once in their lives, and we got to eat one whole. My mother always dyed her hair a a brassy blonde, and when she wasn't entertaining, she put it up in curlers with a thin gauzy scarf wrapped around it. And when she unwrapped the curlers and pulled her fingers through the loose waves, she looked beautiful. Her face never betrayed her sadness about being abandoned or about our sister Laurel, who had died before she was even two. Her slender calves and shapely hips filled in her dresses just so as she wandered the house night after night. As I got older, I would put on the laciest of her bras and imagine taking them off for someone. I kept my hair long and blonde, not as bright as hers was, though. I had her body everywhere and displayed it casually, like it would always be perky for me. I was happy that I had studied her femininity well enough to capture it. But I was no longer making use of it. The subtle, daily humiliations had finally taken their toll on me because nothing I tried worked any longer. So this is Teddy, who gets kicked out of Dartmouth and comes home for the summer. And he grew up in this affluent town, and obviously Cheryl didn't. So they're at odds, but they find something to um, make them love each other. Okay. With Cheryl and my father gone, I wasn't sure what to do with the rest of the night. My father told me I was supposed to show up at Richard Shepard's office in the morning to discuss my future as a surgical sales rep or whatever Richard did. The whole idea was giving me waves of panic. I needed to take something for my nerves. I also needed to put a lock on my door or something because maybe Cheryl had figured out what I was doing. I was pretty sure she'd thrown away the clothes I left in the bathroom last night. They weren't in the hamper, and they weren't in the dryer. I knew she was territorial and anal about cleanliness. Also, she was a snoop. If she threw my pills away, I'd be out hundreds of dollars, and I'd have to go crying to my father, so that wasn't going to work at all. I found some in my jacket pocket, blue and round, and popped two in my mouth and held on. I took a seat on the couch and turned on the television and ran my feet over the cold glass of the coffee table because it felt nice. 
I knocked over the club directory, and when I picked it up, I suddenly wanted to know just where Jill lived. Jill is a mother of two, and she's a hot, hot woman. I didn't know her last name, so going family by family through the directory was a bitch. Finally, I found her in the F's, thank God. Jill, Fulton, husband, Craig. Children, Kimmy and Jenny, both names ending with an IE like it was a thing. They lived on Graves Point, and I considered driving by. I hunted around in my pockets and didn't feel my keys. I got up, and my legs felt thick. I found the keys on the kitchen table and flicked through them, trying to find the right one for the car. Graves Point was only a couple of streets over, and the kids were probably inside by now, so it would be only minimal damage if I hit anything. But I was really going to pull and drive by like a girl, was I? I did it. Her house was mediocre, one of those old, ugly houses from the 70s. I assumed it was their starter home or something. I figured Craig would have been doing something better for himself than this. At least get one of those Cape Cod numbers for her. I could do better than this. I would kill it as a surgical sales rep and then quickly move on to surgical sales manager and Richard Shepard would give me my own territory and I would be able to buy a house that overlooked one of the holes of the golf course. Maybe not one of the good holes, but one of them anyway. That shit would be my starter home. Are you hearing yourself, Teddy? Do you hear your aspirations right now? They are so fucking attainable right now. The windows were dark, and I turned my car off. It was about 6 o'clock or something, so they must have been out to dinner or at Elaine's with everyone else. I could wait because I had nothing else to do. Their garage was open, and the cars were gone. I wanted to see what Craig had going on in there. Nothing much, it turned out, except that he was an anal retentive asshole. Even the oil cans were spotless. A lot of pool toys, shit like that. Nothing that told me anything about what was really going on inside of him, his fears. I went around to the backyard and saw the most amazing jungle gym. It had like ten parts to it, all different colors. It was like one of those ones from an elementary school. What was with this guy? He built it? Nah, he probably hired some guys to do it for him, but made sure his family was out so they didn't see what little he did to make it happen. He just handed over his Amex and let other men do it for him. Manlier men. The slides had domes that you could look out of, and there were like four of them, and monkey bars. I went over and grabbed onto the monkey bars and just hung there. There were fireflies blinking all around me, and suddenly everything felt fine. I hung there until my arms hurt, just swinging back and forth. Headlights filled the backyard, and I knew Jill was back. I had tucked myself in the bubble slide and fallen asleep. She couldn't see me hiding in there, but I could see her and her daughters walking to the back door. With a pizza box in her hand, Jill looked like a mom. I decided to stay in the bubble slide and wait for them to go inside. For a second, she looked my way, and I knew she couldn't see me, but maybe she just knew I was there. Thanks. It's so great. The clonopin just started working. So Excellent. Right. I just want to make sure I'm wearing the right shade of melon. Yeah. <laughs> so in, um, let's talk about, of course, I want to talk about Cheryl first, and then we can move on to the stepbrother, Teddy, and other things. But So Cheryl is our protagonist, the first one. And um, the first chapter you read talks about how she comes from this really poor family. And, of course, I want to talk about uh, women in power and how she jumped class and the politics surrounding the kept woman. 
And so, um, you want to talk about that a little bit, like emotional currency sure. and Cheryl and how she jumped class and. So my. Uh... My aging trophy wife, Cheryl, came from a poor family, but she worked at a outlet store for Ralph Lauren. So she was able to collect the clothing needed for the upper classes so that she could pass into this upper class. But, uh, of course, it's exhausting mm -hmm. trying to pass and pretend as upper class when you're not, especially when you don't have the same cultural touchstones or you didn't summer in the vineyard as a kid so you're constantly trying to mimic people that don't want anything to do with you and kind of know you're full of shit right and then jeffrey who's the um the man who's always absent he's like forever absent and that's the husband he says to her you have potential and she said at some point while being an assistant manager at Ralph Lauren like that she's never dated a customer. And I've heard that so many times in strip clubs. So it's a kind of another Captain Save-A-Ho scenario here. <laughs> but, you know, we were also talking about how um, the kept woman, uh, you talked about in a hairpin interview about sexuality as currency, um, and her relationship with Jeffrey changed her um, status to trophy wife and how, like, you said that um, in peep shows or in strip clubs, a woman performs sexuality and then gets to go home and live the life she wants. But the kept woman is open 24-7, like a 7-Eleven, always compliant to the man she has to wake up with. So right, what do you yeah, think about she, that? Yeah, she, uh, Cheryl, you know, she met him when she was 34 and he was 20 years older and she felt like, you know, I found my ticket and not even in a crass way because she really loved him. And I think that's why he actually, you know, took her on as a wife because she didn't want anything other than love from him. So, you know, but th these kept women, I think from what I've seen, um, in research from the book and just being alive is that, uh, <laughs> You're kind of at the whims of who you're with, especially if you've given up working and all your money comes from, you know, your husband and you're basically, you have to do what they want with minimal f fighting of what they want, you know, especially when you're getting older and you haven't worked for 20 years or something and right. suddenly you don't want to give up the life. And I think you are open to more bullshit and you put up with more bullshit the longer you don't have your agency yeah and the one thing that um what you do so beautifully with the character of Cheryl is that you know she's getting dressed and she's concerned with wearing the right shade of melon and the women around her I want to talk about the other women around her as well she's so clever and so interesting and funny how she um, sees there's the, all these other women, the wives around her, and she never totally fits in. And she has a critical eye that'll just, just it's a gut punch. It's incredible. Yeah. It, you know, she's surrounded by these first wives who uh, treat her as an outsider and a threat because she doesn't have children. She came into this relationship with Jeffrey, um, surreptitiously and she's always going to be a threat no matter what and so everyone is very adversarial to her and for a while she wants to fit in and wants to be a friend because this is her entire community because she's cut herself off from her family because they as I said embarrassed her mm -hmm. and wanted too much and so she's really stuck um, between a rock and a hard place 
trying to make this work and knowing she doesn't really have anywhere else to go. So she's shit out of luck if Jeffrey right. falls out of love with her. And he does. Um, so we're in this Spoiler bizarre alert. community. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but he's incapable of love. We'll talk about no, who gets access to love. you know from the first page there's you a do. problem. You do. There's a problem. So what's interesting also, which brings me nicely to the thing we were talking about as well, which is um, I don't know how many times I've read and seen on television a male character who is like the man cut off from his circumstances, who Don changes Draper. his name and put, yeah, Don Draper, or who puts on a cowboy hat and changes his name, Don Draper. Yeah. Um, so our protagonist in this case, I've never seen this actually happen, but it's Cheryl who is cut off from her family and job and um, and her, all of her circumstances. And in a way, that's there's kind of a desperate freedom. And it's also a kind of feminism because she is really the Lone Ranger. But she has a connection and those connections are strange. And that brings us to her stepbrother, I mean stepson, Teddy, and the boy, Stephen. Yeah, so, so I really wanted to talk about in this book, like, how male desire manifests and how female desire manifests. And desirability. I, yeah, great. Exactly. Let's do it. And, uh... Sexual invisibility and sort of what happens when you're no longer feeling desirable by your spouse or, you know, men around you. And I think that all women, sorry, if you haven't reached this point yet, you will. Uh, <laughs> no, you mean like, fuck you if yeah. you haven't reached this point yet? <laughs> men stop looking at you at a certain point. Uh, and I've talked to older women and, you know, women of all stripes who have sort of said, I've, I've felt the moment that men don't look at me anymore. And I, you know, it was a a moment for me where I was walking in Brooklyn and I, uh, saw all these heads turn to look at these two 20 year old girls. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm seeing this happening Mm -hmm. in front of me. And it was so fascinating. I was like, I have to figure out how to write about this. Um, and so I did. And it's, I think it takes such a psychic toll on women, especially yeah. for my character who has traded on her sexuality for so long. To jump classes. Yeah, to jump classes and just in general, like what happens when a beautiful woman is no longer looked at, if that's what she's always had, like what is your identity all of a sudden if mm-hmm. you don't have that beauty as a currency anymore? Yeah, that's a really hard question. Can I read one quote from the book about this? Okay, so there There's a quote where Cheryl's mother tells Cheryl as a teenager, men only love you when you're fertile, even if they don't want you to have their child. So that's what she learned from her mother. It's brutal, you guys. It's brutal. <laughs> it's really feel-good beach read, It's feel-good. It's a beach yeah, community. It's, total it's about going read. to the beach. Yeah. It's a you beach know, peeing community. on the lawn. Yeah. 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 Everyone acting badly, but somehow barely surviving. So another thing fun, on the topic of desirability, I just don't want to skip over this, was that um, so Cheryl meets Jeffrey as a customer at the store, um, but he has a wife already named Joanne, and she's kind of a ghost in the story and not a real ghost but just like she's a presence Um, and there's a boat named after her and she uh, fell she had a tragic fall and died but Jeffrey and Cheryl were having an affair before that so she actually kind of comes in as the mistress and then becomes the wife and that cycle continues um and so these other women, Marianne, Christine, Karen, Lori, they're all like these super fashiony women who are very preoccupied with their status. Um, yeah, and, and I think she, in this small town, your status is everything. And I think because she wasn't from this town, she sort of didn't buy into that, but she 
began buying into it and it became this anxiety that is it's ever present in the book sort of i have a fashion show scene early on in the book where you know uh cheryl's talking about the ways in which older women are um trying to find ways to have men look at them again and it's like bright colors and and patterns and you know these ways of like i need to stay relevant and you know i also i didn't i'm not writing this in a mean way i'm looking at it as something that i think is interesting to look at and talk about and you know not judgmental in any way and uh, i empathize for her so much both she and teddy for their situations of being an aging trophy wife and Mm -hmm. also teddy you know being this son of privilege but he can't he can't uh get into this world on his own. Right. So Teddy's mother died. And so he, it's a double abandonment. So then, so Cheryl gets a kind of abandoned and because Jeffrey abandons and then, um, and Teddy is abandoned. And so there's this acting out. And so there's this thing that you look at so beautifully and, you know, show through character, through action, um, how people, what happens to us when, um, or what happens to people when they are inwardly suffocating even if they seem to have privilege and access, like who really has access to love and how people really act out when they're suffocating or desperately grieving or desperately alone. Or their access is cut off. Or their access is cut off. Like you were talking about in the Hairpin article about, um, or maybe I was reading it somewhere else, about how... um, there are, there's this class of rich people who like have kids, but the kids are like living in the basement and can't get a job or are like on drugs or like just these lost people right. who seem to be at this club, country club, but have nothing. Right. Like, uh, like, you know, at 26, you age out of the country club and then you have to pay dues yourself and you're like, oh, I'm <laughs> kind of living behind a garage right now. I don't think I can pay the 15,000 or whatever, but you've grown up having sailing lessons. You've grown up in this life of privilege. And how do you you go from that to like living a normal life and I think it's interesting for Teddy and sort of men of his ilk they always seem to fail up and so you know his father's going to get him a job as a salesman even though you know he doesn't necessarily deserve it and there's a point in the book when he goes to Richard Shepard's office and he's talking about how he knows his people because they're the ones who wear the rumpled clothing and they wear mm-hmm. topsiders to work and they're not trying as hard as the ones who really want to strive and get somewhere right and so Teddy's a really interesting and troubled teenager one of two and um, there's a lot of real, there's a lot of heat and energy around these uh, troubled, displaced, kind of grieving, acting out teenagers. Should we go for it? You mm-hmm. want to talk about Stephen a little bit? So, uh, without giving anything away, you know, talking again about how desire manifests within men and women. Uh, there's these sort of pack of boys who uh, run rampant through this neighborhood and there's this feeling like there's all these outside threats but in this neighborhood actually the boys and different people are the threats and they're already living in the community so while they're trying to keep others out and take away their access to this you know beautiful place that they don't necessarily even appreciate the threat is very much within their community. Yeah, the threat is inside the community, and it's even questionable whether or not these actu- these events that supposedly happen are actually happening, or if it's just an imagined. Because Jeffrey is way more of a threat, sort of, at a certain point. 
Right, and like sort of what you're haunted with and ha- haunted by and what you allow yourself to be affected by. And um, and who has access and who's trespassing. Yeah. And, and everyone even is born tre- into it, we're trespassing. Like that was such a beautiful moment where Jeffrey disappears forever. You know, there's a sudden uptick in his business trips away. And so he's gone, but he comes back and he is drunk and stumbling on a lawn and he gets, he grew up there and he's like scream having this altercation. He grew up there, but he's really the threat at the moment. And Cheryl just watches him from the lawn. That was such a beautiful, heartbreaking moment. Thanks. Um, and so about, um, so the heat, you know, is with the teenagers and kind of their connection with Cheryl because they're also outsiders in their own right. And she's clearly an outsider deciding whether to stay or go. Yeah. Um, the person that we talked about who does have access to love in this suffocating environment was Tuck. Yeah, so... And the know, one sex scene in the book. <laughs> I, I, you know, there's a lot of tension in this book, but I didn't necessarily want there to be a lot of sex in the book. Mm-hmm. So sort of looking at sexuality and being deprived of sexuality and what that does to you and there's one person in the book named Tuck who sort of old money and mm-hmm. you know possibly the grandson of a president and he's like laid back doesn't give a shit cuz he doesn't have to and i yeah, think I was wary of Tuck at first when i was yeah. reading him i was kind of waiting for him to explode or do something really nasty or go behind her back no, he just drinks and listens to the dead you know? i know but. he's totally chill he's just surfing what is that a felony (laughs) (laughs) yeah I really liked him yeah I you know I I think again like I I want to humanize this world even though everyone's sort of tragically attacking each other in various psychic ways uh there's still people and everyone's Mm -hmm. trying to survive in different ways and they're sort of stuck in this community by their own doing and um the things that they do each other are are infinitely interesting, sort of how we break each other down when uh, there's no potential like life altering thing happening to you. You start altering each other's lives out yeah. of boredom sometimes. Yeah, there's a great moment. There's um, a lot of beautiful moments uh, of just the visual details and how vivid the scene is in Little Net Cove. And one of them is when... Um, and the double abandonment scene where Cheryl and the stepson are just, they don't really have anything to do at that moment, and they go sailing. Yeah, and it's so freeing. Like, suddenly they're able to leave this community, and they want to sail away forever, even though it's not going to happen. And suddenly, like, they are allowed to be themselves because they're outside of their community. They're cut off from their circumstances in this, yeah. really, in this way that's really easy and kind of breathtaking. Yeah. Um, so about... The fun stuff, terminal loneliness. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was talking before about one of the things that I loved about your character Cheryl is um, she just she's a tough cookie who knows this, she knows what time it is, and she's just trying to. Um, eat, we're not sure about we're not really sure what she's doing, but we're with her the whole way. There's just a ton of empathy for this character who's sort of trapped and suffocated, and um, you know is a trophy wife, so she's using that as her currency, and she's kind of being kicked out of the nest, but she doesn't really have anywhere to go. So Teddy acts out with drugs, duh. He's a teenager. But the way she acts out is she goes on this kind of wild goose chase to find her mother. Do you want to talk about that a little bit since the part you read talked about the mother? Yeah, I think, you know, she's she's 
consistently haunted by her mother and sort of her past and what she's separated herself from. And I think that she, in this in this point of the novel, sort of feeling like, well, what's better? Is it this access in this beautiful place and money and things, or could life have been better if I had just sort of stayed in my class, stayed in my place, and not have had to work so hard for where I am right now? And I think, you know searching for her mother and this sort of loss of mothers in the novel is it was me wanting to play with sort of how affected we are by these presences that might not be there anymore but we're sort of always lost without them yeah that's totally um kind of the it's a honeypot of loneliness yeah you're, you know, this, this abandonment that you feel by your mother, whether you, you've made the choice or they've made the choice or the choice has made, been made, you know, by God or whatever. I think that's something that you can't sort of snap back from. And what you do as a result of that in acting out can often be very interesting. Yeah. So um, without talking about the ending. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll talk about my ending and how I feel like our endings, without giving away any endings, circle each other and kind of do a kind of a fun, similar thing, which is kind of like just kind of an unexpected turn, where at least I'll just talk about my book for a second, how it's kind of an anti-pretty woman ending, where it's just like, it's kind of an angry anti-pretty woman ending, because I've never like wanted to be rescued, nor has that been particularly interesting to me. I've like turned away a lot of sugar daddy, you know, like it's just like never been my deal. Like I just, like even if I pretended to be meek, like it just would never fly. And so like, and similarly, I think Cheryl is a character where like you're concerned for her. She, where, what is she going to do? Like what's going to happen to her, you know? And, um, and the ending was like, um, such a beautiful surprise to me. And, um, on the topic of kind of terminal, terminal loneliness and how it can be kind of this desperate freedom and, um, you know, access to the unknown. And sometimes there's a lot of freedom in the unknown. Yeah. And so I loved your ending so much. It just twisted it. It was so surprising. Thanks. Um, Should we open it? You want to open it? Yeah. You guys want to ask some questions? Let's wrap it up. Yay. That's a good note to end on, right? I don't want to give it Do you want to ask about the book? Do you take over now, or? No, we'll just go. We'll okay. You had a question up here? Oh, yeah. Hey. 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 Hi. <laughs> <laughs> just because you guys ended on endings, and without mm-hmm. giving away your ending, um, beyond knowing thyself, what do you think a woman like Cheryl's happy ending is? Not Cheryl's happy ending, but a woman like Cheryl who's traded in her sexuality. What... What what fills that sexuality hole? <laughs> <laughs> what fills the hole, Carolina? <laughs> what fills the hole? Good question. It's a, it's a good group. Great great first question. Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that's the question I was asking with the book, and I was trying to answer that question. I think that's why I wrote the book, sort of like, who are you? And who can you be when your sexuality is no longer ever present? And I don't know. I think you need to figure out how to pick up the pieces and say, like, my beauty doesn't define me and I can be someone else and it's freeing to be someone else and not just be this, like, sexual creature that's wanted and desired all the time and that's where I get my power from. So, you know, I mean, it's... 
Like Cheryl didn't become a stripper, but she was kind of a really good candidate to become a stripper. Yeah, I mean, she sort of knew at a certain point, like, I can either be an assistant manager at Ralph Lauren for the rest of my life, or I can get the fuck out of here, and how am I going to do that? She saw an opportunity and took it, which is very smart. Yeah. But there's a price, right? There's always a price. Uh Uh-huh. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. Well, I think, you know, it's always interesting to have place as a character, and I wanted to look at, like, how people who are trying to concern... Uh, control their circumstances eventually something's going to happen that's completely out of your control and what are you going to do in that situation and so I wanted to play with you know these external factors that take away everyone's agency Um, even if you have some hand in it in the first novel and not so much in the second novel I don't have a natural disaster in my book (laughs) As my husband oh. knows, I'm an avid watcher of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> I will next time. He hates every minute of it. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating. We're seeing it in a, every everything in pop culture is these women who are freaking out about aging and how it's such like a dirty thing to have happen to. Um, but it's not. And so we've, uh, you know, Jen and I were watching the Kardashians last night. Also, my husband was like, what is your problem? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, like we're just constantly bombarded with this need to have surgery and perfect ourselves and, like, fight the natural happening of our bodies. And so, like, just watching reality TV is research and then... You know, I I grew up in Connecticut on the shoreline, and I was watching these women um, sort of age and not feel desirable anymore as, like, a younger person and sort of look at their husbands looking at younger women, and they sort of couldn't do anything about it because they had become these kept women. And so you kind of have to put up with it or you lose your whole lifestyle. And so I wanted to look at that. interested in the other wives shunning her and I'm, I'm wondering how much you toyed with the idea of how or how, you know, divorce is reality who would have been accepted in that circumstance was there any, you know, how, how do these women integrate and, and who are the acceptable trophy wives who is there ever Okay, wait, I have to repeat her question yeah. for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I, let me make sure I get all of the components. The question is, she wants to hear about the other women shunning, shunning her and how they integrated against her. Well, I, you used interesting terminology when you said her, she was surreptitiously brought in. And I, I was thinking to myself, who, who wouldn't be surreptitious? Who, 
you know, and this is the reality, the American reality. And and how, and I I would imagine these women are the only bonding structure you have in this circumstance. So I'm sort of more interested in how they how they integrate. And how did the women integrate? Well, you would think, like, if they're all in this world, they should be nice to each other. Um, But, you know, that doesn't usually happen, especially if you feel like someone's younger and hotter and could potentially, you know, steal your husband. And so there's this animosity right off the bat. uh, And I don't think you can ever, you know, get over that hurdle, especially if that's how you've come in. and, you know, these people have lived in this neighborhood for 20 years. They've known each other. And so this person's always going to be an other because everybody has had these joint experiences with each other. And suddenly here's someone who's come in and hasn't. Um, so you would think it would make sense to say, like, we're all in this together. Come with us, sister wives. But uh, it doesn't happen. <laughs> But they don't. They kick her out of the fashion show, and it's terrible. (laughs) They're terrible to each other. And I think that the book, um, by showing that, it kind of sends a memo like, hey, we're not competing. Yeah, yeah, women. By showing that. Women help help, Let's help each other. Yes, please. That's the statement. Next question. I have to repeat your question for the podcast, so that's why I'm going to do that. Any other questions? I mean, everyone of different ages, but in particular women, have responded to the book, and if there's been any difference, um, and if by that kind of different problem. How have women of different ages responded to your book? Well, when I first started talking about, like, uh, hey, I think, like, sexual invisibility is a thing, uh, women were like, yeah, no shit. Um, (laughs) So... So I think, you know, I've had these sort of conversations, uh, you know, it's only been out for like a week and a half or whatever, but I I was in Connecticut in the town that I grew up in, and one woman like pushed a book in front of me and was like, I've been waiting my whole life for this book because I hate this town. (laughs) (laughs) They come out of the woodwork, those women, they come out of the woodwork. So, so far positive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Could you talk a little bit about one of the, um, I don't know, another way you illuminated for us Cheryl's awareness of where she was was through the lawns and how everyone else was concerned with all this bullshit and she just loved that one rose bush. Can Mm. you talk a little bit about any of that? Can you talk about the landscape, the lawn, and the rose bush and what that meant to her? Yeah, like, uh, again, when you have so, when you have so few problems, you just start creating problems. And I think (laughs) the people of this community, their main concern is like hedges being, uh, manicured and whose dog is shitting where and stuff like that. And maintaining their own status. Right. Right. And so if your yard looks terrible, suddenly like you're failing as a human being. And (laughs) I think like she's having this issue with her flowers dying and it's, it's mirroring like 
her failure as a woman because also you know i specifically made this book at, when she was 44 and so it's just past the age where you can have children and so all these hallmarks of like being a woman have passed her by not necessarily through her choice uh and suddenly it's like what do i focus on for the rest of my life especially when everything is spinning out of control good answer yeah go ahead um, I thought it was really interesting the point that um, a sex worker goes home to her own life, and this woman, or a lot of women in um, a moral America, enter into these contracts, social contracts, and um, be, and find themselves possibly in a less moral situation. And um, living in in a country we do, which is so steeped in religion, I'm just wondering how you guys would suss that out both from your perspectives you know, in terms of um, a, a, a feminist and uh, you know, independent uh, female positions. The question is, what? how do we suss out like the, the moral implications yeah, and being the religion kept, of being a kept woman versus a sex worker? Yeah. I mean, in terms of I really loved reading uh, or just talking about how, as a sex worker, um, I guess in, in San Francisco in the 90s, which was when I was um, on a reign of terror, if you will, in the strip clubs, um, you know, I thought I was going to take down the patriarchy one lap dance at a time. And I was also a lesbian for like seven years, so it was really clear, like I would go into the strip club, perform desirability and make men feel good about themselves, and then I would go and be in a band and sing and have my girlfriend. So there was this, like, it was really um, a thing of celebration in San Francisco during that time. But I mean, that's, San Francisco's a special place. And, um, you know, other places are different, and I would go other places and feel very judged and feel very um, cheap. <laughs> it's expensive to look this cheap. <laughs> Dolly Parton. But, um I think that uh, it is a thing, you know, it's difficult to transition into the mainstream. There is a stigma in this country. We are a very religious country. We're a very conservative town. I'm thinking of sex workers as a workforce and how they're seen in this region. Regionally, I feel like Los Angeles is not as um, liberal as they think they are. Um, it's a very, and we're a very religious country. I, I think things are also changing drastically. I hope so. And, uh, you know, that's how I feel. I feel like anything is possible, and I'm, you know, trying to segue into the mainstream. But it's definitely the honest, you know. I mean, the it's difficult. It's difficult to transition into the mainstream. There is a little bit of a backlash. You're Thank you. You're very sweet. Good. You know, I think with kept women, it's sort of like this thing that you don't talk about. You just yeah. know that it's it exists. You either choose to do it or you don't, but it's not a thing that's talked about, especially in those kind of communities. It's like, you know, uh, it's hush-hush because it is so conservative and they don't necessarily want to talk about how transactional their relationships are. Um, but a lot of times in a lot of relationships, it is very transactional. And I think, you know, you're either honest about it or you're not. And I wanted to look at, you know the dishonesty of, of being a kept woman and not owning up to it. And I think in your fiction, fiction allows you to live in the truth in a way that maybe memoir doesn't. Yeah. Because you can really show that transactional relationship and that emotional currency. Because there's such a price for her to stay in that situation and to be aging and to not have anywhere to go. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you see that especially in this town. Um, I mean, you can just, it's so obvious. Oh, but yeah. no one's LA. living in the truth. Yeah. 
people are just I mean, you just take a bunch really of crap happy. and be cool with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? Which I have to ask: Does marriage work? Well, the leading cause of divorce is marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Any other final questions? Well, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.